สังบูโตเธอแบลสเซอร์วันลาโลดเฮฟเลียเทนเพอร์เฟกต์และไลท์แมนต์สวากาโตเยนับฮากาวาตาดามโมเดอร์ทิชิงวิชิเอ็กซ์ปาวน์เดสเซอร์เวลสุปฏิปันโนยาสัมภกวัตโตสาวกสังโฆอันดูระบลัสเซอร์วันส์ดิสไซเปิลส์ฮะปรักติสเวลดามายังภกวันทังสัทธรรมังสัสังกังเธอดีสัพุทธะธรรมรันละสังกาอิเมหิสักเรหิยตาราหังอารุปิเตหิอาภิปุจยามาอุยรันดา with offerings are rightful homage สัตว์นอปันเดบาโกวะสุชิระปารินีบุตโตปีเอตส์เวลฟอร์สตัตตาบลัสเซอร์วันอาวิงอเทนลิเบเรชันบาชิมาจานาตานุกัมบัมฮานัสัมสเตลฮัดคัมพัชชันฟอเลเธอเจเนเรชันส์อารหังสัมมาสัมบุญโอมะกะวะนัลโลดะ perfectly enlightened and blessed one บุตรทางพระกวันทางอภิวาเดมี I render homage to the Buddha the blessed one สวัสดีพระกวัตถะมุตต์ The teaching so completely explained by him ดามังนามาสามิ I bow to the Dhamma สุปฏิปันโนมากวัตโตสาวกสังโฆ The blessed ones disciples who have practiced well สังขังนามามิ I bow to the Sangha อันมายังบุทัสสะภะคะวะโตภูบาบาคณมาคารังกาโรมาเซ
namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa homage to the blessed noble and perfectly enlightened one homage to the blessed noble and perfectly enlightened one homage to the blessed noble and perfectly enlightened Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Buddhang Dhammang Sanghang Namasami
one of the um, the striking things um, when I, uh, I went on the retreat with uh, Rinpoche in, in uh, Litchfield a couple of years ago was uh, the area that he's been broaching in the last couple of days, the, um, what he calls uh, undistracted non-meditation. And um, why was the, one of the reasons why it was so striking was because uh, this was something that uh, Ajahn Sumedho had, uh, had s- uh, stressed a lot uh, over, the, um, over the years. Uh, Ajahn Sumedho is an American abbot, the kind of head of our community in the West, is a senior Western student of uh, Venerable Ajahn Chah. And um, he, uh, uh, when I was thinking back to, to uh, when he first started really emphasizing this, back in about 1986 we had just opened up Amravati Monastery in England. And this was a, 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 a very big center, and the community had been expanding very rapidly. And uh, we bought this uh, this big place, this old school. And um, uh, the, um, the the sangha was very very large. So we had about 30 35 monastics, um, probably about 20 lay people living there. And that uh, we were on this uh, for for years. There's been this kind of uh, onwards and upwards uh, ethic about our life. It was like this was, uh, you know, at last the Dharma was coming to the West. Ajahn Sumedho was this kind of glorious leader. Everything was kind of golden and explosive and all happening. And there was this sort of tremendous vigor and enthusiasm and uh, of, uh, sort of uh, kind of Dharma charge in the air. And so this theme had been continuing for a few years, and so uh, and we got into the um, we developed a tradition of having a winter retreat during the the, uh, the cold months, um, dark months of the year, January and February. And so then uh, the first monastery we had down in in West Sussex it was pretty kind of small and cramped, um, and it wasn't really conducive to a large communal retreat. Amravati had a lot more space, and a lot more people started showing up. So. Um, the, um, we, it was about 1986, I think it was, uh, if I remember correctly, and um, we had this winter retreat, which was this, this sort of theme had been uh, had been developing for for some years, and so it kind of peaked at this winter retreat, where it was uh, we we decided on a a kind of no prisoners taken, <laughs> death or glory, kind of. Uh, um, uh, approach so it was like three in the morning to eleven at night, and uh, just kind of non-stop uh, uh, routine. And uh, some of the really vigorous were breaking the ice on the fish pond and jumping in at three in the morning just to kind of freshen themselves up for the morning sitting. So it was a kind of knock them down, drag them out, no holds barred uh, kind of uh, spirit at the time. And so this was, this was uh, great for all the vigorous males. <laughs> the kind of spare testosterone floating around. It was, uh, it was very popular. And uh, so we kind of lambed into this with great glee. And then, uh, but um, uh, even though Ajahn Sumedho didn't really say very much at the time, 
kind of afterwards, uh, um, during the, the, the year, when we were run, running up to the, the next retreat, and um, so we were talking about, well, you know, how are we going to run this, and how are we going to do it again? And he said, well, I didn't really like the results of, you know, that, that kind of, <laughs> what we were doing last year. You know, it was, there was, certainly there was some fire in the air, but, you know, it, um, it, didn't really have a, it didn't have a good effect on people, and, you know, and besides the fact that, you know, people are keeling over and, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that we, were, we were also very poor at the time, so that we were, half of us were malnourished, there was hardly a vitamin in the place. We were kind of living on rice and beans. One time I looked in my bowl one day and, was, you know, you kind of look in your arms bowl at the beginning of the meal and you kind of re- reflect on the food and suddenly I realized that actually all that was in my bowl was, was, three, uh, was, uh, th- was it, three types of rice and five types of bean. <laughs> the cooks were really clever. <laughs> and it was fr- you know, really freezing cold winters. 85, 86 are really bitter cold winters. And, and I also at the time, I was, I was kind of right into this whole business. So I, w- I wasn't, wasn't even lying down at the time. I hadn't laid down for about three years. So I was sleeping, sitting up. I had an affair with a night storage heater in the, in the meditation hall. It's kind of these heaters that stay on, kind of solid uh, heaters filled with bricks. They kind of warm up during the night and then stay warm during the day. So I used to kind of cuddle up to the heater at night. So... So anyway, Ajahn Sumedho kind of surveyed this terrain of, of what, what was happening with the sun. But he said, yeah, I don't really like this kind of spirit. This is, this is kind of going in the wrong direction. And so um, for about the first two or three weeks of the, the winter retreat in, in 87, then uh, he, he just kept telling people not to meditate. And, uh, and to say, just don't, don't, don't meditate, just be, mind, just be awake. And exactly like Rinpoche saying, stop it, stop meditating, don't do it, no, okay, that's it. And, and uh, he was just over and over again, like two or three Dharma talks a day on not meditating. <laughs> and that, uh, in exactly the same manner, he'd say kind of to people, kind of, open your eyes, stop meditating. And to, you know, sometimes you hear these plaintive cries, but what are we supposed to do? <laughs> I wish they would receive a thunderbolt saying, do? <laughs> Don't do anything. You, you know, you are what you, what you need to be. Don't do anything. Sure. So of course, going to put you on the spot. But, uh, but it was trying to, in a way, emphasize the same dimension of um, the kind of doingness, busyness, uh, the, the becoming quality that, that, that takes over the whole meditation, uh, the whole effort of what spiritual practice is, spiritual life is, it kind of gets co-opted by the becoming tendency and it gets legalized by being called meditation, or me kind of becoming enlightened. And, and, uh, and yet we miss the fact that we're, we're kind of losing the whole thing, that the, the, it's turned into a... a, a um, a uh, kind of self-based um, program. You know, it's become something that, you know, the, the self is becoming something other. And that uh, we've, we've lost track of the, the, uh, the real essence of it. So, uh, and it was, really, it was a really effective retreat. And, you know, after about two or three weeks of really getting the sense of, and he kept saying, you know, don't do something now to become 
enlightened in the future, is be awake now. Being, and you talked a lot about being Buddha, being awake. And, uh, you know, and I greatly appreciated that at the time, because I was like, you know, motoring at full speed, and I was definitely going places. <laughs> I said, oh, right, going places, that's not necessarily a good idea. It's not always the thing to be doing. So then when I, I came across some, um, you know, Rinpoche's teaching, it kind of reminded me very much of that, that same kind of um, quality. And that um, this uh, balance of you know, undistracted non-meditation of both, you know, acute attention, clear and, and, and highly uh, focused attention, but non-doing, not, not doing anything. And another phrase that I like to, to use in this respect is um, diligent effortlessness. So there's this, in exactly the same way, there's this, there's this putting forth energy, there's a commitment, there's a, 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 like a, a unity, a kind of integrity of purpose, but yet the effortlessness, just not, not, uh, not pushing, not trying, not me trying to get something, but just allowing the natural energy of your, of your heart to, to function in a focused and, and free way. Oh, it's very, uh, very easy um, to become unconscious of this kind of um, uh, sort of um, fierce attitude when working with the mind, and uh, it's it's interesting how with I mean, Rinpoche has been talking a lot about, about cutting, like you you, know, you cut the distraction, you cut the clinging, you, you cut the cord of clinging. And uh, I forget the Tibetan word, trekcho, yeah, that's cutting. And so you know, there's that. That is a very you know, important part of of the the, the wisdom practice. That like you have uh, this um, beautiful uh, Manjushri image, like the Manjushri with the flaming sword. Um, and that that's uh, that's very you know, significant. And that that kind of um, um, Acuity and uh, and clarity is something that we we really need to to cut to to delusion to to kind of snap out of it to be able to um, break through the the blockages. But it's also very easy to to make that the habit, even when you're trying to kind of do that in terms of non-meditation, like cutting through your meditation. <laughs> you can get pretty sort of brutal <laughs> with that and. Uh, and get imbalanced in the whole way that we practice. I'm, and I'm definitely speaking from personal experience here. You know, not only at that time, but you know, for, for years, uh, you know, I found that kind of tendency. Like I, my attraction when I first came across Buddhist teachings. You know, I, I'm a kind of friendly sort of a fellow. You know, I'm a, quite a kind of chum, you know, chummy, kindly type. But you know, when you come across the, the, the wisdom teachings, then it's like, yeah, that's what we want. Kind of give me the Vajra. Just get in there and just cut off all the defilements and, yeah, compassion, loving kindness. Well, you know, it's the kind of kindergarten stuff. And you know, give me the give me the the uh, the ultimate. And uh, you know, we want the best. You know, we want the highest, the kind of ultimatist. You know, the the purest, the mostest. We don't want to kind of muck around with the what seems like something kind of inferior or or preparatory or shallow. We want the we want the real goods. The, you know, the the deep tissue stuff. 
Yes, I, that was you know, my kind of uh, tendency. Because you, know, you, you, you hear these teachings or you read these books and you go, yeah, wow, right, I want that. Let's do that. And, uh, and even though that, that's a crucial part of it, uh, I think it's also significant how you notice like with the chanting that we do, there's this, uh, like the dedication of, of merit and, the, and this. Uh, and the, uh, in the Mahayana tradition you have this um, constant recollection of dedication, dedicating your practice for the benefit of all beings. Um, and you know, it was interesting when, when we just sort of went through our chanting book and thought what, uh, what chants will we copy up for, to do during the retreat then uh, we have quite a you know, repertoire of different things to do and you know, the ones that, that we tended to pick were the, you know, the four Brahma Viharas, the Discourse on Loving Kindness, the uh, May I Abide in Well-Being, the um, Sharing of Blessings. These kind of um, you know, loving kindness, um, softy type <laughs> recollections. Yeah. The kind of um, sweet uh, gentle, um, uh, kind of loving um, expressions, and and it, it, I feel it's really significant that we we kind of do these. And I think it's important. I mean, it's probably many of you are not used to doing a lot of chanting during retreats. Many of you who've done a lot of vipassana retreats here at Spirit Rock or IMS or with the the, um, the Spirit Rock teachers. Many of you who are Spirit Rock teachers. You know, there's not a big kind of devotional, ceremonial chanting element. I know some of you do, some of you don't. But um, I, personally, I would encourage, um, rather than just looking at these as little sort of embellishments, like the flowers on the shrine, or the kind of little bit of you know, filigree around the, um, the general you know, Dharma picture, but the, these are really very, very significant. It's not just to kind of jolly up the, the, uh, the general environment. And you know, th- um, again, you know, this is I'm, I'm, uh, this is a kind of confessional. <laughs> I used to treat the morning and evening chanting with absolute contempt for years and years. You know, you do all the words and you kind of make all the movements, but it's like, <sighs> you know, come on, let's get to the real stuff. Come on, let's kind of get down there and cut through. You know, just anatta emptiness. You know, let's kind of break through all this kind of pussyfooting, knocking around. Loving kindness. Huh. <laughs> Humbug. <laughs> uh, so the first, the, the first time I had a, a real revelation about this um, was uh, uh, years ago, um, nearly twenty years ago now, um, and. Uh, this was, again, way back in the um, onward and upward period. And uh, I was a very, very zealous young monk. And, um, uh, and even though my mind was... Uh, I'd, I'd started to meditate in the monastery. I, I was never a lay Buddhist, really. About three weeks. <laughs> but I, was, I just kind of came straight off the beach as a, as a kind of complete... Uh, uh, ingenue in terms of the Buddhist world and then uh, into this monastery in Thailand and then never left. So my entire training has really been in, in, experience has been in the monastery. Anyway, so for the first few years my mind was really extremely uh, crazy and 
uh, all over the place. Um, but I, I found after you know, three or four years, I managed to develop a bit of uh, concentration and and uh, and uh, a lot of energy, and um, found that, uh, that the meditation actually quite came quite easily to me. Quite could get quite strong states of meditation. So um, and. and during this time, this was the early years in, in, of our community in England, and Ajahn Sumedha was, was giving like, you know, just it, throughout the year, was giving like two or three Dharma talks a day. You just kind of wait for him to sit down and start talking. And it seemed like, you know, that there was just this constant stream of, of high Dharma. So there was this very kind of inspired um, time, and also this, this, this feeling that, you know, enlightenment was just so close, just the unconditioned, you know, was, was such a, a, an obvious reality, and it was just a matter of cutting through the last few defilements, and boom, yeah, it would all be there. So uh, this was one of our early winter retreats, and we were about three weeks into it, and, um, and I'd been, you know, very, very diligent with the meditation, and not talking to anyone, not looking at anything, and just kind of really extremely focused. And every uh, lunar quarter we have an all-night meditation. We have a vigil through the night. So this was the full moon of January. So I was, three weeks into the retreat, I was really charged up. And I, I was convinced, you know, okay, tonight's the night. It was this kind of crystal clear night, just brilliant stars in the middle of English winter. And the moon was just blazing bright, you know, full moon. And, uh, and I really had the juice going. It was like serious... Mojo, <laughs> and so uh, we came to the evening sitting. I had the chanting and the dhamma talk and so forth. And, and so I'm sitting there and uh, really, really bright mind and, and uh, very, very clear. And uh, so you know, keep, you know, this thought you know, keeps floating in any minute now, any second now. You know, you know that kind of. Left a bit, right a bit, okay, that's it, now relax a bit, okay, straighten up a bit, okay, right shoulder down, right shoulder down, okay, yeah, okay, looking good, looking good, right, left a bit, yes. okay, I think, I think we're about, okay, yeah, hold steady, hold steady, don't do anything, all right, all right. Yeah, it's obviously very familiar terrain to everyone. So this, this is going on for like hours, and, and, uh, and, 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 you know, and, and actually you know, my mind is getting kind of more and more energized and brighter and brighter, so the, kind of the clues are, are, um, are getting more and more um, prolific, like you know, something big is about to happen. And so about two o'clock in the morning, um, there's this kind of thump, 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 mutter, 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 rumble, rumble, thump, doors opening, closing, heavy footsteps in the hallway. Shoes in the hallway. Who's wearing shoes in the hallway? Well, mutter, 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 thump, thump. But what's going on out there? In this kind of little interference at the edge of my enlightenment program. You know. <laughs> hey, what are you doing? Well, just ignore it, ignore it, ignore it. It's kind of noise, noise. <laughs> just me and the moon humming, humming on our way to Nibbana. And then, um, even though I try, you know, try my best to ignore this this noise, and then. Uh, um, I noticed there was this kind of presence in front of me, and I opened my eyes, and there's one of the monks kind of kneeling down in front of me, looking, looking at me, and saying, um, "Could you come outside for a moment?" What is this? What's going on? And my first thought was, "But, but, what do you mean come outside? This is my, this is my big night, you know." 
I'm busy. <laughs> so uh, anyway, what happened was that I came outside and there's these policemen in the hall. I'm police. What the heck's going on? What's going on here? And so, um, so as what transpired was that one of the novices, one of the Anagarikas, who was this very kind of uh, erratic young man, had um, uh, he uh, because of all the, the meditation uh, during the the, uh, the winter retreat, he'd, he'd never done that much kind of concentrated practice before. And like probably many of you are familiar with, if you're a kind of borderline case, a lot of too much samadhi sends you onto the wrong side of the border. So young, young Robert had not only gone over the border, but had <laughs> traveled many miles. And uh, he'd uh, not only traveled many miles, he'd emptied the petty cash box before he went. Gone down to the local pub, bought everybody drinks, and um, was discoursing to the entire assembly at the pub. And, and also, because, because he, was in this, um, he was in this sort of slightly crazy but sort of hyper-lucid state, he, he, could al- he was also like, he could kind of read people's minds, and, and he was just sort of eyeballing people in the pub and saying, you know, you're doing this and you're doing that. And, you know, so people were seriously freaked. This is English. English village life is not really ready for shaven-headed young men in white coming in. Bearing gifts and, and uh, revealing their inner secrets. You know, the, the English are not very good at revealing inner secrets at the best of times. And having someone else revealing your secrets in public is kind of distinctly upsetting. So they, they, they called in the, uh, the law. So then the, the, the police, then, with, with great, you know, equally English compassion, understood this guy was just a little bit off. And, and um, anyway, he. Um, the, the, the police had brought him back to the to the monastery, and uh, he had started really. He'd really kind of lost it, and he started raving and and um, said he wanted to kill himself. and And he was at the time living in a, a hut in the forest, and um, and so uh, most of us lived down in the, the main house, and the forest was about a quarter of a mile away, half a mile away. So um, what this monk was telling me was that because I, I'd been quite friendly with this this uh, novice, you know, one of the couple of people in the community that could really relate to him at all, because you know, he was pretty strange, and we were sort of down at the we were very junior at that time, so we were sort of safe. We weren't authority figures, and so we got pretty chummy together. So what this monk was telling me is that you know you know Robert's in in deep trouble, and he's uh, really in a, a a very weird state, and he's telling saying he wants to throw himself in the lake, and um, can you go can you go help him? You're the only one that can do it. And so part of my mind's going, but, 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 you know, look, my cushion, you know. <laughs> this is my big enlightenment night, you know. You, I, and so the first thought was, you know, not tonight, you know. Well, kind of wait till the morning. And then, but then just say, something in me said, don't be stupid. You know, go. You have no choice. And so they, they kind of loaded me up with thermoses of, of uh, hot chocolate and candies and you know, all the kind of allowable goodies that, that monastics can have. And I went to charging off to the forest. And um, so to cut a long story short, I, this was about two in the morning, so I spent like the next three hours or so in his company kind of drinking tea and, and cocoa and kind of just basically trying to talk him down to 
just talking, let him talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. And finally, uh, you know, he exhausted himself. And, and around dawn, um, you know, I let, uh, he said he, you know, he wanted to sleep, and I realized, okay, he's okay, he's safe, he's not going to do anything stupid. So I, uh, I left him um, and, uh, and uh, came out of his hut and then started walking through the, the path in the forest. And, and so I was sort of charging down the hill and charging along the path. And I, so I thought, well, where, why, why hurry? What's, what's the race for? So I can slow down, slow down. Finally just stopped. And there was a full moon setting down over the other side of the lake. I just stopped and looked out. Suddenly realized all of the voices that had been going on in my mind during the first part of the night started coming back to me. Like, you know, any minute now, you know, this is my big night, I'm really going places. And it's like, and all that entire, that, through that entire scenario, I had never for one second thought about anyone else except me. The whole concern had been kind of me and my enlightenment program, me me waiting, me awakening, me being liberated, and the 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 realization there wasn't the vestige of concern for doing it for anybody else's benefit, except for me succeeding at the spiritual program, and it suddenly I just felt like about this small, it's like so incredibly stupid just having been in the presence of this like one suffering being like, and that how you know my attention had narrowed so much that you know all other beings had just been completely shut out and there hadn't been a, a fraction of a concern so you know what started out with a good intention you know, like wanting to to, um, to you know develop spiritually and be liberated that would be you know a good thing to do with my life had kind of narrowed down narrowed 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 until it was me you know achieving the the big prize, you know. and then it was just, uh, at that moment suddenly revealed it was like incredibly shallow. Like, what was that for? And that it was that, that at that time it really struck me how important the whole kind of altruistic principle was. That um, and even though one might be doing a lot of work and really you know developing very very good qualities and and skillful means that that kind of um, neglect of, of the others and just, or having that just as a kind of token reference yeah because we used to do the sharing of blessings every day and that kind of thing but it's like oh real people really suffering oh right real people uh-huh oh and like having been so close to this this person and having kind of been struck be, been struck by that and also my mind you know been very yeah, alert and sensitive. It was like it really sank in. So from that time, I started paying a lot more attention to the kind of um, the whole element of altruism and consciously um, bringing in the the concern, the inclusion of, of other beings, not just as a concept, but as really um, picking that up. And so at that time, I. Um, the, a lot of the Mahayana teachings tended, started to make a, you know, considerably more sense to me. And I saw how the Mahayana movement, what had maybe been one of the driving spirits behind that, was because of that narrowing within the, the, the emphasis on you know, enlightenment for the individual, 
that it kind of naturally starts to drift towards uh, a neglect of, of the, the greater picture. And so at that time also we had a close, started to have a closer contact with a, a Chinese monastic community here in the States, Master Xunhua and his Sangha. And they would, we had a lot of their literature around, so I started, that's when I really began studying some Mahayana literature. And kind of getting a sense for how that worked together, the, both uh, the compassion side and uh, the wisdom side. Because whereas you have Manjushri as the, the kind of wielding the flaming sword, it's a very masculine, uh, the wisdom element is a very kind of masculine, you know, penetrating light, um, uh, cutting through type energy. The compassion energy uh, and that quality is the one of, of um, is characterized by Avalokiteshvara, Kuan Yin, which is a much more, uh, which is a receptive energy. Avalokiteshvara, Kuan Yin, means the one who listens to the sounds of the world. So whereas the Manjushri has this sort of, you know, the, the um, outgoing light en- energy then, and, and the, the imagery of vision, Kuan Yin has the imagery of hearing, receiving, is a, a much more feminine uh, quality. It's also interesting that Avalokiteshvara started out as a very, kind of, as a, bodhi, you know, a bodhisattva for the 90s. Uh, started out as a male figure all the, is, uh, in all the, the scriptures from India and, and uh, China and Tibet, I think, that also that uh, Chenrezig Avalokiteshvara started out as a male, but then, uh, then she transformed into a female as the centuries went by in China. So now you see images, of, there aren't any here on the shrine right now, but you see images of Guan Yin as a, a very much a feminine form. But uh, she started out as a he. Or he became a she, either way. But uh, because it's very much representing that, that which is intrinsically a kind of um, a much more receptive feminine quality. And that if our practice doesn't really embrace both of those, if we kind of lean too far in one, one direction or the other, then we become you know, seriously imbalanced. So it's, it's always a, a question of holding that um, duality, emptying everything out, and yet um, also appreciating wholeness of things. You know, one, one way that uh, I re- um, reflect on this is um, just like in the word the Buddha used for himself, Tathagata, uh, continuing our etymological theme here, Tathagata um, is the, Buddha, the, word, the word that the Buddha coined to refer to himself. Uh, and it means, uh, it has, it's made up of two different parts. The first part, Tata, which means such or thus. And then the second part, which is uh, gata or agata, tatagata, a long A in the middle. So, for, for literally for millennia, there has been a debate going like, does it mean tatagata or tatagata? Because agata means to come and gata means to go. So, is it tatagata or tatagata? Does it mean the Buddha is thus come or thus gone? Is he totally here, or is he totally, totally gone? Is it utterly imminent or utterly transcendent? So this is one of these things that the, the scholars have been bashing each other over the heads with for 
literally millennia. <laughs> and uh, it's, uh, the, you know, the debate goes back and forth. But the, the Buddha loved uh, wordplay and, and um, irony and, uh, and used the kind of double entendre many times and very often. And my feeling, if I have a sense for the Buddha's way and his use of language, is that he deliberately used an ambiguous term. That it's, it's both and. It means both that completely gone and completely here. So that the, the gone aspect is that the transcendent wisdom aspect of like, yes, gone, empty, no thing, uh, utterly empty. And then the, thus come come to thusness, come to suchness, is the utterly here, completely imminent, utterly uh, attuned uh, to, the, to all things, utterly um, attentive to, embodied in all things. So that, that represents the, the thus come element, is the compassion aspect, that where um, uh, everything is self. And the wisdom element is like nothing is self. There's a passage in the Sutta Nipata where the Buddha says, the wise one does not take anything in the world as belonging to them, nor do they take anything in the world as not belonging to them either. So it's like a holding that, that kind of duality. In the... Um, In the use and understanding of, of, kind of kindness and, and compassion in this respect, um, I, for myself, I don't like to teach loving kindness meditation as like a separate feature of um, of meditation practice or non-meditation practice. Keep it, keep it straight with the with the, the theme here. Um, but it's I, I find it's, it's far more skillful to actually cultivated as like a, 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 maybe not an undercurrent, but like a, a, a kind of background theme, like a, a, a presence that uh, informs and infuses every effort that, w that is made in terms of spiritual training. Um, that there's that, uh, the, the attitude with which we work, the whole way that we pick up any aspect of, of the training really needs to have this quality of, of, of loving-kindness imbued in it. And, uh, and it, as, a, as a preface to that, maybe it's, it's also important to understand that loving everything doesn't mean that you like everything. Because sometimes it's misunderstood that to have loving-kindness is you know, you're trying to pretend that you like everything. Like liking pain, or liking you know, your grief, or your, um, your kind of unrequited love, or your or your um, overdraft, you know, or your decaying uh, sense faculties, you know, your, you know, your, uh, your ex who haunts you, or your exes <laughs> your, who continue to haunt you. That, uh, but meta, in particular, is, um, it means the heart that does not dwell in aversion to. It's like not dwelling in aversion towards anything. Or like Rinpoche said it, like, don't make your emotions the enemy. Or like, like actually someone quoted a passage from the Dalai, one of the Dalai Lama's recent books, 
And he was talking about the Chinese. He said, my friend's the enemy. <laughs> my friend's the enemy. So it's that uh, quality whereby we, we are able to, even that which is bitter and painful and, uh, and ugly, kind of, and that which is kind of cruel and, 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 uh, and uh, harmful, that we do not pile aversion upon that but we realize that it's like that place in our heart where we recognize this too has its place in nature. Even cruelty and ugliness and bitterness, betrayal, you know, the, the whole um, spectrum of, of uh, the unlikable. That that too is part of the whole of life's picture. And that uh, loving kindness is, is that a quality of allowing that, accepting that. Not saying that you approve of it, not saying that you think, oh, this is a good thing, you know, that uh, torture is a, is a good thing, or that uh, deceit and, and, um, and uh, malice are, are good things, but saying, this exists, this is part of the whole picture, this is part of life's whole uh, panorama, here it is. So that that, um, establishing that as a basis for practice. So that then, whatever we're dealing with in terms of our own minds and our world, then there's this fundamental quality of acceptance. And that really, for myself, I find that needs to be there, whether you're trying to do uh, concentration practice, or insight practice, or, or anything, or, you know, or, or this kind of very refined sort of not Dzogchen, non, kind of non-duality type practices of letting go of everything. That there needs to be that fundamental recognition that, that the, the, there is no enemy. There's, only, there's us. There's no them or, it or, or that or it. It's like, it's all, it's all, uh, it all belongs. Fundamentally, everything belongs. It has, it has its place in nature. The, uh, the chant that we do, uh, the, the Brahma Viharas chant that we do in the English, we haven't tried the Pali version yet. Um, but uh, the place that that appears in the dis- well, one of the places where that appears is in the, um, the Buddha's teaching called the simile of the saw. And he says, uh, what he's saying at that point is that um, if you were captured by bandits, and they were sawing your body into pieces, with a, limb by limb, with a two-handled saw. Anyone who gave rise to a thought of aversion towards them on, on account of that would not be practicing my teaching. Now I know this is a, a, a kind of Olympic standard retreat. You know, <laughs> that you know, even to get in the gate, you have to be you know pretty hot stuff. But you know, this, this, uh, I think we would all admit, places the bar pretty high. Like beginning the high jump at six foot three, but to me, some people find it an incredibly daunting and unrealistic teaching. But to me, it's, it's actually extremely helpful, skillful, because it's saying hatred is never justified. Even and he, he uses this extreme and almost absurd example, where it's utterly reasonable to feel aversion to people who are kind of sawing you, up, and they kind of just kill you quickly. They're just sawing you off bit by bit. I mean, you would think a little bit of aversion would be quite allowable. You know, just to kind of snip it. Just say, hey, guys, come on. You know, just, okay, you don't like me. Just kind of, let's just finish this, please. You know, be reasonable. 
you know, but it's like the Buddha say, not one, not one hair's tip of of aversion is uh, is appropriate. As soon as there's that, no, this doesn't belong. This shouldn't be. You are evil. Why me? As soon as the heart lurches into that, then the Dharma has been missed. That's the fact. Right? Something in us will probably revolt, but the heart knows. That's right, damn it. <laughs> but what that's pointing to, it kind of points to it very clearly to us what the, what the score is. Um, and that because of that setting that out so clearly, then as soon as we, we start to find ourselves judging our own minds or the people around us with that same kind of um, uh, harshness, where we find we're cultivating justifiable hatred for uh, you know, the government or our, uh, our thinking mind or our erratic emotions or our inability to concentrate or the, uh, you know, the tax department or or our kind of our damaged body, or our damaged life, or, or whatever it might be, uh, that, that um, as soon as we, we recognize that, then it's like, you know, that's a clear sign, oh, the Dharma has been, has been lost. There's no, there's no vision of reality here. It's obscured. There's, this, is not, um, this is not in accord with, with truth. So it becomes a sign for us. It might seem that this is this is kind of totally impractical, but uh, it, you know it, it is doable. It is doable, um, and uh, the um, and I think it, it's helpful to recognise this because. What we think, what we think we're capable of, is very different from what we actually are capable of. And that we might think, I could never do that. That's impossible for me. You know, I have this. You know, I gripe about this and I complain about that and I'm fretting over this. And and, and yet, it, it is possible. That that potential is there for us. And that um, when we when we find that quality of, of total acceptance and an absolute non-aversion, where there's that kind of complete um, acceptance, kindness, compassion, then it's like our heart is, is uh, there's a tremendous quality of, of ease and release. Because it's, it's uh, the most challenging thing to be in the face of, of an extreme bitterness and pain. Um, and to, to find the spaciousness, spaciousness around that, where the, where the, where the heart kind of most easily kind of contracts and impacts itself. It's most difficult to find spaciousness around that. But then it's like when we pick up that moment and say, yeah, this too, this too is part of nature, this too is just the way it is, then at that moment there's an expansion around it. We, we feel the space of, of uh, emptiness that not only surrounds that, but then as we allow ourselves to hold it, then we see that, that the whole thing is transparent. That even no matter how dense and real that the, the feeling of I and me and mine is, in that holding, in that spaciousness we see, not only is there space around it, but there's, there's light coming through it also. 
One of the, the stories I, I like to tell in this regard is a, um, a tale of uh, Master Xunhua's teacher. This was uh, Master Xunhua was the abbot of a city of 10,000 Buddhists. They were the people who gave us the land where our monastery is. He and Ajahn Sumedho were very good friends. And one of a kind of close contact between our communities for many years. His teacher um, was uh, the patriarch of all five lineages of Buddhism in China. He was so highly respected. He was the, the head of the Chan lineage, the Sutra lineage, the Mantra lineage, the Vinaya lineage, and the esoteric lineage. All five. And you know how much different sects can kind of argue with each other. Well, he was so kind of inarguably um, pure <laughs> and skilled that everyone wanted him to be their the head. When the, the Red Chinese took over, um, they were endeavoring to wipe out religion, and so he um, became a very obvious target. So he was um, pursued, uh, uh, well, his monastery was attacked by the, 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 um, the army, the Chinese army. And uh, he was uh, about, let's see, 1949, he was 110 years old at this time. He, um, they beat him uh, with wooden clubs until he was the kind of bloody mass on the, on the ground and left him for dead. And even though he had bones broken and organs kind of uh, damaged, he survived. And uh, you know, after some weeks, um, he you know, he recovered. And um, so news spread around the area that, that in fact he hadn't died, and that uh, so that the, the the army, the Red Army, came back again. And this time they used iron bars. And uh, again, they, they beat him to a pulp. And he was just a complete mess. The guy's 110 years old, a little frail old man. And um, so he's, he's really smashed up and, and seriously, seriously injured. And, uh, and yet he doesn't die. And so his disciples are kind of looking after him and nursing him and trying to, you know, repairing his wounds and that. They're just amazed that he's still alive. And, and he had incredible... Power, meditative powers, and uh, they they were convinced that he was just sustaining his life energy just because of, of um, the feeling of grief that they would have when he when he died because he knew they were very attached to him, and so they said, you know, please, Shufu, Shufu, don't don't just um, stay alive for our sake. You know, we're very touched that you would endure this kind of weeks and weeks of pain and misery because of. of um, not wanting to, to, to leave us and to, to, um, to, to die. Um, because you know, we, we acknowledge you know, we would miss you, but we'd far rather you, you just let yourself go peacefully rather than enduring all this agony uh, um, for our sake. And then he said, it's not for you. It's true I'm keeping myself alive, but it's not for you. Because if I died, the karmic retribution on the people who attacked me would be so great I couldn't bear to be responsible for that. After that, they left him alone. <laughs> that uh, he survived, and uh, even started. He was even teaching retreats again a few years later. Yeah, the um, the books Chan and Zen Training by translated by Charles Luke. Those were from Dharma talks he gave at a retreat four years later. He was still leading a session. He died when he was 120. 
he made a vow to be a monk for a hundred years. So it is doable. <laughs> but even, even uh, another little story I thought I might tell. Um, um, you know, even a, a less exalted being. Um, one of our monks was on a pilgrimage in India. And uh, he was doing, visiting the holy places on foot, like a, th- a thousand mile walk. And India took um, with him traveling together with, with a, a, lay, a layman, um, just living on alms food and, and traveling. Uh, and uh, village India can, it can be pretty um, uh, dangerous in some res- many respects. And they kept being told in different places they'd gone to, oh, you be careful, be careful, there's bandits there, you might get robbed. And, they, and all, you know, several places they'd walk through, and they thought, oh, no, we're on this holy pilgrimage, and you know, nothing's going to touch us. And they felt, we're chanting, the, you know, doing all these protective chants, and you know, we had all these blessings from these great masters before we left. And, and um, yeah, we'll be fine. And they, they'd kind of gone through the various dangerous areas without any kind of hassle at all. So they were getting kind of, hey, <laughs> we're doing pretty good here. And um, actually, before he'd left, uh, um, Master Shunhua had been visiting Amaravati Monastery. And, and uh, apropos of nothing very much, one time when they, he was just giving a talk to the uh, informal talk to the whole group of us, he, um, this monk this, uh, who went on the pilgrimage asked him a question. And Master Hua didn't know he was going to go to India. But he answered the question by saying, When you go to practice in the place of the Buddha, you should not find fault with anyone for any reason. So, hmm, that's interesting. So when he went to India, he kind of embedded that in his thoughts. And, okay. So then, uh, they were traveling through this area between uh, Nalanda and uh, Rajgir, I think, uh, through this forested area. And lo and behold, they were, they were set upon by a bunch of guys with, uh, who were being, uh, cutting trees in the forest, and they all had axes and stakes of wood. And so um, they were in a very lonely area and then these guys surrounded them. And then the, the layman who was with him started, you know, they kind of made it very obvious they wanted to take all their things. And so the layman who was with him started fighting them. They kind of, they started sort of muscling in and he started fighting back and, and a, a brawl ensued. And then, and then he ran off. And a, you know, a couple of the guys ran after him. And so then this left four of them with a, with a monk, and then it, they, uh, they made it obvious that um, they were going to kill him. And uh, he spoke a little bit of Hindi uh, and could understand, you know, what they were saying. But also, the guy was standing in front of him with brandishing an axe. And so then, suddenly, into his mind flashes this this thought: When you go to practice in the place of the Buddha, do not find fault with anyone for any reason. So. Uh, he, he suddenly realized, okay, well, if this is what's happening, um, I can't escape, and I'm not going to fight these guys, and they would win anyway, so I'll just give myself to them. So he kind of put his hands together and put his head down, started chanting Namatasa, and just kind of waiting for the axe to fall. Um, and, then, and then nothing happened, nothing happened. And so he kind of looked up and he saw the guy was kind of holding the axe over his head, but kind of couldn't bring it down. And so then he got a bit cheeky and he went like this. (laughs) 
It was Ajahn Sajita. <laughs> I was testing his luck a little bit, I think. <laughs> but again, the, the, and he kind of put his, you know, he kind of put his hands together, and the guys couldn't harm him. And then eventually, the, the layman who was with him realized, "Hey, wait a minute! I was supposed to be protecting the monk. <laughs> I shouldn't be. You know, I'm, I'm not doing my job." So he ran back and and tried to help out. But anyway, they, they kind of had another scuffle, and as as it turned out, they took all of his all of their things. They left him with his his lower robe and his sandals and everything else they took. But they, he, the monk didn't get a scratch on him. Now, the layman who fought back, he got kind of thumped around a bit. And also because he'd run away, and, and uh, uh, after the second time he came back, then they, they thought, you know, this guy thumped us around a bit, we're going to get him. So he ran off a second time and hid in the bushes. And uh, what he realized was that afterwards, as they were, they were discussing it back and forth, was that the one realized that, you know, if, they had, if I had died, I would have died with my mind focused on the, the, uh, the triple jam. And the other realized, if I died, I would have died with the mind of a hunted animal. And, uh, you know, I found this, this you know, story kind of very, very affecting. <laughs> and that um, how, you know, and, the, and these are kind of deliberately dramatic um, images, but, you know, they're, they're, I find they're useful because they, they kind of characterize a certain... Uh, quality very very clearly that it's like it's like turning towards that which is most frightening or most off-putting like the guy's with an axe and he's threatening you and it's like that in us which can turn towards it and say please I'm ready it's like when when this is happening internally when we're we're getting the kind of the axe men internally you know the the waves of of greed or the waves of kind of fear and, and anxiety the waves of nostalgia and, and longing or whatever. It's like that gesture of, of turning towards. Okay. Namo tasa. It's kind of, okay, please. And that, that, that acceptance. Then, like Rinpoche has been saying, there's this kind of, this magic that happens. And what, what happens when we, we actually take the trouble to turn towards things with that that gesture of acceptance and surrender is there's this kind of magic transformation. You, you, we, we transform the, the difficulty, the, the thing that we're running from, that which is you know, apparently painful and, and unbearable. It, it's transformed. It kind of, it is, um, it moves into a whole different state. And, and when you when, if any of you look back at a situation where either you, you know, you've been in, a, in, in this state or you've had this happen to you where um, someone has come at you in a rage or, or kind of very um, anxious or excited and, then, and you just receive that and you don't react to them, then you become like a mirror. Right? Or, so, or you've, done, you've done that to someone else. You come flying at them and you go... Rrr, 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 and then they, they just say, oh... You're having a really bad day today, aren't you? And then it's like, ah, oh, it comes straight back to you. And you're like, oh, oh, right, yeah, sorry about that. I was kind of had a momentum going there. And that 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 emotion is transformed by the purity of the reflection. And so that when when we are um, dealing with our own emotional life, 
that same kind of, of kind of <coughs> open and clear reception, then it, it has a way of transmuting the emotional state. It doesn't suppress it, but like, like Rinpoche has been saying, it kind of shrivels or sort of, or, or, or the energy of it gets changed into something which enlivens and brightens the mind. So the, the last thing I thought I'd like to, to just outline, um, in terms of the, um, like the Brahma Viharas, or, or earlier today someone mentioned about the seven factors of enlightenment, and there's, there's many structures that you come across in the Buddha's teachings, like say the, the Brahma Viharas, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity. You know, these are talked about as specific practices that you develop or like the seven factors of enlightenment, the, the things that you develop. Um, but it's helpful to understand that, that what we're doing is that, say, when the heart is completely enlightened, when, there is, when, when the heart is liberated, when there's rigpa, if you like, then, say, the, the natural disposition of that, uh, of that heart is loving-kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity, so that when the heart is completely freed, in terms of an emotional response, then that is what will naturally come forth from it. You don't, it's not a practice, it's not something that you do, but it is the innate disposition. Similarly, um, the, the factors of enlightenment, mindfulness, um, contemplation of reality, uh, energy, um, tranquility, joy, uh, loving-kindness, equanimity, these are the like, intrinsic qualities of the liberated mind, of the, of the awakened, awakened heart, the enlightened heart. So that the, those are already there, or, or like even the five precepts. You know, when, when the heart is completely liberated, then it's impossible to, to deliberately harm another being. It's impossible to, to uh, act acquisitively. It's impossible to take advantage of another being sexually, or, or, in a, or uh, use your, your sense world indulgently. This is impossible. You, you can't lie, or, or use speech in a harmful or deceitful way. It's like, the, it's like the, you know, the force of gravity won't allow it. It's like there's nothing there that would, would, could cause you to, to bend the truth. So, it's, it's important to see that these, these qualities, even though they're outlined as practices, that they're, what they're doing is we're taking the, these conditions, like, or, or a, a thing that you do, like, okay, I will now practice loving kindness, or I will develop compassion, or I will take the five, I will keep the five precepts, or I will develop mindfulness. So you're taking that particular quality as a thing, but what you're doing is you're aligning the conditioned, the conditions of your of your mind. You're aligning that with the reality of your own nature. Okay. So it's like, so you're making the, the conditioned realm, if you like, resonate or match the unconditioned. So, in a way, it's like to using Rinpoche's analogy, it's like, there's the gap. So what you're doing by, by say, practicing the seven factors of enlightenment, or practicing the, four, the Brahma Viharas, is that you're kind of lining yourself up in front of the gap. Okay, you're kind of gathering your, your wits, and okay, okay, here we are, we're, we're in front of the curtain here. You know, there's the gap right in front. And so you're setting the conditions whereby the, you know, the, the gap is right in front of you. And that what's outside in terms of the condition is, is completely resonant with and attuned to that which is inside. 
so that then um, the it is a practice you know that you're picking them up but it works both ways so that as you you practice uh, say loving kindness that automatically brings your heart into accord with reality and when your heart is, is awakened to that reality then it automatically functions in with loving kindness so that it's like a two-way traffic do you follow that? I find it's a really useful principle to understand that it's, it's like both intrinsic qualities that come forth and then the practices are simply like, like kind of getting the strings in tune so that you're, the, you're, you're just lining up your behaviors and your attitudes with what is already the case inside. So this is why you know, goodness feels good because it's resonating with reality and that's why when, when, we are, when we lie or we harm another we feel bad because it's dissonant with the reality of what, what we are it's as simple as that, it's like it's, it's not matching up it's in dissonance so that by doing these kind of practices all we're, all we're doing is that we're creating that alignment so the Buddha said the, the Brahma Viharas, they're not transcendent qualities but they are um, they are a, um, uh, a peaceful abiding, a beautiful abiding. They're an abiding place, but they're, they're pure, they're very beautiful, they're, they're aligned. So that what we do, we, as we set the conditions like that, then, you know, like, if you like, the gap is very close. And then as soon as the, you know, the gap opens, boom, you're right there. <laughs> you're lined up with it. If you're kind of busy, you know, worrying about yourself and getting excited about this and, and getting irritated with that, you, you know, even if the curtain's like, hey, I'm over here, <laughs> The curtain opens up, but you're kind of all over the place, so the, the gap might be you know, wide open, but you're just not there for it. So I will uh, finish there for the evening. And uh, I realize this retreat has turned into a bit of a talk fest, but uh, today was a little bit quieter. So I thought I'd ruin it for you. But uh, there's also been a, a popular um, appeal for silent morning sitting, so I can let you know that that will be happening from now on. So there might, for those of you who feel bereft, <laughs> who like the talking during the morning sitting, but uh, I think we'll give it a rest for a few days. Okay. You can do the uh, sharing of blessings, the uh, English version which is uh, marked as page 35, second, second sheet. Chant the verses of sharing and aspiration Through the goodness that arises from my practice May my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue My mother, my father and my relatives and the, and the moon and all virtuous leaders of the world 
May the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, May all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless. Through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing, May all desires and attachments quickly cease, and all harmful states of mind, until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind, with mindfulness and wisdom, Austerity and vigor, may the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge, unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord. The Sangha is my supreme support through the supreme power of all these. May darkness and delusion be dispelled. as a postscript to the story about the monk who got robbed in India. Within about three days, not only had he had all of the things that he had stolen replaced, but there were actually many things much better than what he had before. (laughs) There's a story.